0: So I just standing here on the stage, I kept saying to myself, good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening, because I've said like good morning to already 10 people. So good evening. I'm so glad you're here on a Sunday night with us. And I'm so glad, believe it or not, that it's the last Sunday in March. Can you believe we're already a quarter of the way through the year? This Sunday wraps up March. Next Sunday begins April. And I'm happy for a lot of reasons. One of them is because basketball is finally over and baseball is beginning, which is a big deal for my family this year because my freshman son played on a basketball team that didn't win a game all year long. He started practicing the week before Thanksgiving, and he stopped practicing the week after Valentine's Day. And in all that time and in all those practices, they didn't win even one game. Um, So it was a hard season to kind of watch these good kids kind of struggle. They had a nice coach. I went up to the coach after like the fifth or sixth game. I could tell he was kind of down on himself and down on the kids. And I said, coach, man, just keep doing a good job. The kids are playing hard. They're having a good time. Just like stay at it. And he said, man, Christian, like my problem, he said, the whole, he said, I have a whole team of threes. That's my problem. I have a whole team of threes. Now, for those of you who don't understand basketball, here's what you need to know. There are five players that play at a time. And a lot of times, positions are known by a number, and a number is known by a skill. So a one is somebody who can dribble really good and pass really good, they're called a point guard. A two is somebody who can shoot really, really well from long range, they're called a shooting guard. And then the four and the five are the big guys who are big, who are strong, who can jump high, who are really good inside near the rim. And then the three does everything else. So when he said we have a team full of threes, basically what he was saying is we don't have anyone who can really dribble or pass, we don't have anyone who can shoot, we don't have anyone big. But other than that, like we've got some great, great kids, we just don't have a team that like is designed for basketball. Let me ask you a question. As you sit here tonight and look at your life spiritually, does your life is your life surrounded by a team of people? who are designed to help you win spiritually. I want you think about that for a minute. Is your life surrounded by a team of people that's designed to help you win spiritually? As you leave here tonight and you go live your week, are you surrounded by a team of people whose really their primary goal is to help you win spiritually? Some of you have never thought about that question before in your life. You've never looked at your life that way. Some of you heard that question and you thought it doesn't really matter. You're not even going to think about it much. Some of you heard that question and you answered quickly, and the answer was no. No, Christian, when I leave church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and I go live my life, the people in my life are not really designed to help me win spiritually. Did you know that when Jesus was on the cross, he was thinking about the spiritual team in your life and making sure you were surrounded by people who could help you win spiritually? We're going to be in John chapter 19 tonight. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 19. We're actually back in John chapter 19 because it's where we were last week as well. Or you can fire up your Journey Church International app, everything on the screen will be downloaded on your phone so you can follow along. Pull your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. Because as we find ourselves back in John chapter 19, we find ourselves in week three of this series that we're calling Famous Last Words. It's Jesus' words from the cross. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to basically teach our people the soundtrack of Easter. A lot of people know the picture of Easter. We can draw the photograph of Easter, but we don't know the soundtrack of Easter. And here's what I mean by that. I was jogging through my neighborhood yesterday and I saw a little sign that somebody had set up that that said, you know, we'll mow your yard if it's under 10,000 square feet for $30 a time and we'll treat it for weeds and everything else for another $50. And it had some information on who to call. And in the bottom right-hand corner, this little sign that was stuck on the corner were three crosses kind of on a hill. I knew exactly what it meant. It was the picture of Easter. So many people know the picture of Easter and use the picture of Easter as a sticker on their car, as a sign on their business or something on the back of their business card. But do you know the sounds of Easter? Do you know the soundtrack of Easter? Because what Jesus says is so crucial and incredible for our faith. We've heard him say, Father, forgive them. We heard him last week say, I'm thirsty. This week, we're going to hear him talk to two people and tell them something that means a whole lot for us in the year 2017. John 19, we're going to pick up halfway through verse 16. There's a break in my Bible, probably the same in yours where we pick up. John says, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with... Two others, one on each side, Jesus was in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest and the Jews protested to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said, to one another. Let's decide by lot or like by casting dice or by picking a number. Let's just decide kind of by chance who's going to get this. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That was an Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would one day come and when they died, they would divide up his clothes by basically shooting dice for him. So this is what the soldiers did. into his home you know i grew up in a small town in southern ohio and my dad was a football coach at a small school where football in that town in the school was a pretty big deal and he was a pretty good football coach so people in the town when we were winning were nice to us and gave us um, and gave us things if we were in need of them i remember one year my dad needed a truck And someone in the town stepped up and gave him a truck. Now, when you live in a poor blue-collar town, sometimes the gifts are generous but not great. And we got a truck that, that was a poorer version of this truck. My dad's truck did not quite look this nice. It was, it was blue in the front, it was red in the back, and we called my dad's truck the Doord because the front of the truck was a Dodge, but then they had welded a Ford bed onto the front of that Dodge truck. I lived in Redneck, oh, Southern Ohio. So we drove around in the Doord, blue front, red back. Most of it was rust color, to be really honest with you. And I loved riding around town in that truck with my dad. It's where I learned to drive a stick shift, driving around town in the Doord with my dad. It had a radio in it that had one station that worked, 700 WLW, out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And I remember driving to school with my dad, driving to practice with my dad, driving home with my dad, and it seemed like we were always in the car at the same time, and there was always a program on with a guy by the name of Paul Harvey, who was always, for those of you who know it, what was he doing? He was telling telling the rest of the story. Syndicated radio show for more than 33 years where Paul Harvey would kind of talk about a well-known event that everybody knew, but he'd tell some details about it that no one knew that just kind of really made the story even better. And I remember when I think about that truck, hearing Paul Harvey tell the rest of the story. Well, today's message, if we just stay at the cross, um, is nice, but it's not as impactful as if we learned the rest of the story. You see, at the cross, this statement from Jesus was sweet. It's a nice thing for a son to say to make sure he's going to take care of his mom and take care of his friend. But after the cross, when we get into the rest of the story, we learn that this statement from Jesus really meant survival. Survival. It wasn't just a nice thing set in a moment of time. There was a spiritual principle set up that would change the way Mary and John would forever live their life and change the way you and I are supposed to look at life. Let's look one more time at this statement from Jesus from the cross where in verse 26 Jesus is hanging on the cross. He sees his mother close enough to speak to and it says when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to her woman here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. You read it and you think, what a nice thing to do. And it was, but it was so much more than that. It was so much more than that for John and for Mary. And it was so much more than that for you and I, if we learn what this text wants to teach us. So tonight, I want to try to teach you three things in our Bible study time. I want to teach you about the woman. I want to teach you about the disciple. And I want to teach you the rest of the story. Because I think when we learn those things, we have this massive spiritual application that we can choose whether or not to pursue in our life. The woman, the disciple, the rest of the story, let's go. The woman was Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus. She was the assumed widow of Joseph, and she was the mother of Jesus' siblings. Not very many people know all those things. I hear people all the time who are born and raised in church say that I had no idea Jesus had brothers and sisters, but the Bible says that he did. We get all of those facts from Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Mark says, When Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth to preach, they knew him by the work that he did around town. Possibly he did some work for them. They knew him by his family. In Mark six three, when Jesus was preaching in his hometown, they said, "Isn't this the carpenter?" It's how we know what his job was. Isn't this Mary's son? The fact in this patriarchal or this fatherly society that someone would identify Jesus with his mother rather than his father tells us that his father probably was not around. We know when Jesus was at the temple when he was twelve, his dad was there. Now we see him at thirty, his dad is not there. So sometime in that 18-year gap, something has happened to Joseph, probably in those age where people didn't live sometimes past their mid-30s. Joseph had died when Jesus was young, young enough that people now only knew him by his mother. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? They said, we know him. We know his mom. We know his family. Mary was the mother of Jesus. She was the assumed widow of Joseph. She was the mother of Jesus' siblings. Mary was around the ministry of Jesus. We see her during Jesus' three years of ministry. Sometimes she was outside the ministry of Jesus. But on this day, she was at the cross with her son. So Mary was around the ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 2, when Jesus did his first miracle, he was at a wedding that his mother was the hostess of for one of his relatives. And Mary came up to Jesus and said, you got to help. We've run out of wine. And she was freaking out. She said, Jesus, do something. And we know that he took the water and he turned it into wine, proving himself to be supernatural for the first time for his disciples and those who would follow him. Mary was an integral part of that miracle. She was around his ministry. In Mark chapter 3, though... We see Jesus doing a, a small group, he's leading a small group Bible study at a house that fills up with so many people that they're out the doors, they're sitting in the windows, they're trying to come down through the roof. His mom and brothers hear what's happening, they think he's gone crazy, so they go to basically say, you need to come home and eat, this is craziness what you're doing, and someone said, hey Jesus, you're like your mom and your brothers are outside, um, they're waiting for you. And he said, you know what? You are my real spiritual family. You are what is priority right now. And on that day, she found herself outside the ministry of Jesus. But on this day, she was at the cross. In an ancient culture, if your husband was gone, your oldest son would take care of you. And if your oldest son was gone, then your next oldest son would take care of you. So in ancient culture, it would have been normal with Jesus gone that Mary would rely on James who was her next oldest son, who wrote the book of James that we have in our New Testament to care for her? But Jesus didn't look down from the cross and say, Mom, Mom, go make sure James takes care of you. He said, Mom, you're going to go with John. Who was John? This disciple, John. John was the youngest of the 12 disciples. Some scholars think that John was between 13 and 15 when he became a disciple who might have a 13-year-old son. Think about him hanging around with Jesus and being a disciple with Jesus. John was the author of five New Testament books. He wrote the book of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. Revelation. John was one of two sets of brothers among Jesus' disciples. Andrew and Simon Peter were brothers. James and John were brothers. And he was one of the three disciples in Jesus' inner circle. A lot of times when Jesus was really struggling, he would pull three of his disciples aside. It was always Peter, James, and John. A lot of times when Jesus wanted to have kind of a big unveiling of ministry, he would tell these three before he told anybody else. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. Which is why he's described often in scripture as the disciple that jesus loved when people thought about jesus and john They were like, oh, yeah, they're tight These guys care about each other and he was the last living and the longest living disciple Which is where this book comes in The book of john is one of four books written about the life and ministry of jesus. Matthew mark and luke are the others But john is different John was written near the end of the first century in around A.D. 90, which meant that the other three books had been around and in circulation for a generation, which means that there were 30 to 40 years of people who all they knew about Jesus was from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it was as if John stepped in and said, hey, the whole world knows all of this about Jesus, so I'm going to kind of fill you in on the rest of the story. So ninety percent of the Book of John isn't found anywhere else in Scripture. It's like John said, "Here's some gaps that you're not aware of that you need to know about my friend Jesus." And it's a book that focuses on personal relationships and personal interactions. It's like John wanted us to know people. Lo- John- it's like John wanted us to know that Jesus loved people, and Jesus wanted to make sure people were with the right people. It's in the Book of John that we learn about Nicodemus, and for a chapter, we hear a conversation between someone who's relied on religion more than God in their life. And John kind of helps us see inside that. Only in the book of John do we find that. We only hear about Lazarus, Jesus' friend, being raised from the dead in the book of John. An entire chapter, John chapter 11, is devoted to that, where Jesus proves he has power over death. We only hear about the woman in the well in John chapter 4, a lady who thought her past was so kind of marked by sin that she could never get close to God that we hear Jesus having a conversation saying, you're going to be okay. When We can get through this together. And it's only in the book of John that we see a woman caught in adultery who in the world wants to judge someone who was caught in a pretty big-time social media type of sin that Jesus said, listen, let the one of you who hasn't sinned go ahead and throw stones at her, but anyone who's ever sinned before, let's show her some grace. That all is from the book of John. Because John wanted to show Jesus as deeply personal and deeply concerned about the personal relationships in our lives, which means this today. Today, Jesus is both aware and deeply concerned about your spiritual team And whether or not you have a team designed to help you win spiritually on a daily basis. You see, John was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. And he was was the only disciple recorded as being at the cross. So for John, this window into the cross is a big, big deal. It may be the reason that John gives more than a third of his book. John chapters 13 through 19 are devoted to an 18-hour Span of time. I want you to think about that. If you had a friend who lived for 33 years and you were writing a book to tell people about his life, would you take a third of that book and devote it to 18 hours unless that 18 hours were the most important, crucial 18 hours that defined the other 33 years? You know, as John said at the cross, he watched his friend dying. As John said at the cross, he watched his spiritual mentor dying. As John sat at the cross, he watched the person that he had kind of learned to model his life after dying. And it would have been natural in this generation for Jesus to look at John and say, listen, I'm leaving, but your brother James is going to be here and it's going to be okay. You see, with Jesus gone, John would have to rely on James, different guy, same name, His older brother to step into that spiritual mentor role, to step into that spiritual best friend role, to step into that spiritual role model role of his life. It would have been natural for Jesus to say, John, thanks for being here today when no one else came. Listen, I'm going and you and I are close. But if you stick close to James, everything will be okay." which leads us to what I call the James effect. Quick review to make sure that we're kind of all on the same page. In ancient culture, with Jesus gone and Mary's husband gone, who should have taken care of Mary? James, her next oldest son. In ancient culture, with John's spiritual role model and spiritual big brother gone, who should have taken care of John? James, different guy, same name. Well, if this is true, we've got a big problem. Because James, the brother of John, gets beheaded by Herod in Acts chapter 12 just a few years after this. Which means if Jesus would have looked down from the cross and said, John, listen, I'm leaving, but you've got James, it's going to be okay. That in just a few years, John is in trouble again. And James, the son of Mary, he ended up martyred. By the Jewish authorities, scripture, uh, uh, spiritual history tells us he was thrown off the top of the temple and when he didn't die, he was stoned until he died because he refused to stop his involvement, his engagement in the church in Jerusalem, telling people about Jesus, which means that if Jesus from the cross had said, mom, don't worry, James will take care of you, that a few years later, she was going to be in trouble again. You see, James, both of them are going to be gone very, very soon. Which means these two are going to be in trouble spiritually if James was the solution. And Jesus knew this would happen. And knowing this would happen, his words from the cross show his heart to make sure nobody ever ends up spiritually alone. Jesus' words from the cross tell us that it's his heart to make sure that you're not spiritually alone. And that if you're spiritually alone today, you don't have to stay spiritually alone. And if you've been spiritually alone for a long, long time, that you don't have to remain that way. You see, God is in the business of looking at your life and making sure that you're surrounded by a spiritual team who will help you win spiritually, but you've got to open up your heart to receive people to you who aren't currently now your spiritual family, and you've got to be willing to invest yourself in others and give of yourself. You know, Mary and John could have looked at Jesus from the cross and said, no, that doesn't even make sense. Mom, you're going to go with John. No, I'm not. James will take care of me. I mean, it would be rude to argue with someone who's on the cross, but we don't see that written into the narrative. John could have said, I ain't going to take care of your mom. Your brothers can do that. But he didn't. You see, both of these people somehow realized that Jesus must know something that they didn't know. And they said, all right, I'm not sure why you're asking us to do this. But if you're telling us that spiritual community should become spiritual family, we'll go with it. You see, the James effect, when we study this really closely, teaches us that we only live life alone if we choose not to engage with the spiritual family and the spiritual community that surrounds us. You say, wait a minute, Christian, are you saying if I'm spiritually alone, it's my fault? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you remain spiritually alone, it's your decision. Because Jesus tells us from the cross to look around at spiritual community that can become spiritual connections, that can become spiritual family. If you're without spiritual family, how long has it been? You know, I, I, I talk to people all the time who come into our church and get connected luncheons and coffees and Say, tell me, you know, what you're looking for in a church. And I I meet a lot of people who say, you know what, I just want a place to kind of chill out and heal for a little bit. I came, you know, I was really busy in my last church or I'm brand new to church. I just want to sit and learn. I really don't want to serve. I don't want to be involved in groups. Like I, you know, I don't want to get involved in community. I just want to kind of sit and get healthy for a little bit. And I say, you know, that's awesome. Please do that. And maybe that's where some of you are for six weeks. That's awesome for 90 days that probably is very refreshing for 6 months it's probably pushing it and if you go years and years sitting and listen to sermons but never get into community that becomes dangerous spiritually you see the spiritual truth of solitude and isolation is this brief times of solitude can heal need a season off from spiritual community get it those can heal But extended seasons of isolation can be dangerous. You say, why? Listen to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 4 about life alone. Solomon, the son of King David in ancient Israel who killed Goliath, writing in his memoirs about what he's learned about life, says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and doesn't have anyone to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they're going to keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Christian, why is long term isolation dangerous? Because you're going to fall. Maybe that's the first time you've ever had a pastor tell you that, but you're going to fall spiritually. I'm going to fall spiritually we are gonna fall spiritually. And when we get back up, we're gonna fall again. Solomon actually says it is, we should have pity on someone who falls and doesn't have any spiritual family around to even notice it and help them up. Why is long-term isolation dangerous? Because you're gonna have some cold nights. You're gonna have some hard nights where the only emotion you can really feel is hurt and pain. And Solomon says, on those nights when you don't have anyone to come put their arm around you, shoot you a text message, you see how you're doing. On those nights when no one brings you a meal or even checks in on you, those get longer and colder and lonelier. Long-term spiritual isolation is dangerous because you're going to have some cold nights ahead of you. Why is long-term isolation dangerous? Because you're going to face attack. Like you know your marriage is going to face some battles that are really hard. If you don't know that, you haven't been married very long yet. You know, if you have kids before they get to 18, you're going to face some battles with your kids. I promise you, I wish it wasn't true. It is, and I'm on the very front end of learning that. You're going to have some battles. You're going to lose a job, you're going to miss a payment on your mortgage, some of your marriages might fall apart. Your parents are going to get sick. Your kids are going to get in accidents. You're going to have some battles that you have to face. And Solomon says, man, if you get some spiritual family, you're going to be okay. But boy, if you're alone, it's dangerous. You shouldn't have to do things alone. Jesus, I'm going to make sure you have spiritual friends, spiritual family. Let me ask you a question. Can you remember your first friend? Like, can, you, can you go back? Can you remember like your first real friend? Not the imaginary ones, the real ones. <laughs> My first real friend was Jeff. I met Jeff at the Christmas play of my kindergarten, um, in my kindergarten year. My school had two kindergartners, a, a morning kindergarten and an afternoon kindergarten. And we never met the other class until that first Christmas play. And I remember going into school that evening and the other class was already there and we'd been practicing our songs and we had kind of our costumes laid out. And I remember walking into the room and spotting Jeff. Because he had on a Cincinnati Reds Pete Rose batting glove that he wore that day to the Christmas play. You say, why would he wear that? Because kindergarten boys dress themselves and they like to wear stuff like that. And I remember seeing that and thinking, that is the coolest thing that I've ever seen. Because growing up in Southern Ohio, watching Pete Rose get more hits than anyone who ever played before or after him, uh, like that was awesome. And I, I wanted that batting glove. And if I couldn't have the batting glove, I wanted to be friends with the person who had the batting glove. So I remember going up to Jeff and introducing myself for the first time and then realizing he lived close enough to ride my bike to his house. And he became my first and lifelong friend. Jeff's a guy who I ate more meals at his house than I did at my house. Jeff's a guy that when I would call my mom and say, what are we eating for dinner, and I didn't like it, I'd call his mom and say, what are you eating for dinner, and if I did like it, I would go there. My parents would call Jeff's parents when they didn't know where I was, and just last week, Jeff and I were texting about the NCAA tournament, my first and longest friend, but most friends from elementary school don't make it to middle school. Most friends from high school don't follow to college with you. Most of your college friends are not the most, the closest people in your life today. You kind of have to keep handing off. And at some point in our adult life, we choose to quit handing off and we decide that we'll just be alone. Think about the people who stood with you in your wedding, for those of you who had bridesmaids and groomsmen. When I think about the five guys outside of my dad, my dad was my best man. When I think about the other five, two college professors, one high school teacher, one's in rehab, one's in prison, it's like that tells you who I ran with when I was in high school and college. It's like I look at those guys and I I wouldn't have made it to that point in my life without those friends. Like they made me who I was and they supported everything in my life. But the next 18 years, I had to find new sets of friends, and I had to find new spiritual mentors as I moved from town to town and place to place. I had to keep looking so that I didn't wind up alone. You know, look at the people that I rely on today in my ministry life more than anyone. I didn't even know most of them five to seven years ago, and now I can't get through a week without them. You know, Jesus' words from the cross remind us that God is in the business of providing spiritual family for people. So let me ask again, what's your spiritual family look like? Do you have a team in your life that is designed to help you win spiritually? If you say, I'm not sure, or if you say, I don't think so, or if you say, I would like that, tell me what that looks like. I want to close today by giving you a picture of a strong spiritual family. I'm going to really give you some categories, and I'm going to leave it to you to kind of fill in the blanks and begin kind of an adventure of of trying to find spiritual family and be spiritual family. But I want to say this before I start this. I understand if you're in here and you don't have spiritual family, the number one reason why you won't go looking for spiritual family is you're too busy. You already get too many people in your life. Psychologists tell us that we relationally are, are built like Legos, you know, we've all got some little relational nubs on us, and, and when, that, when that little nub is full, when it has something on it, you can't put another one on it. And most of you are looking at your life saying, you know, I, I don't care if the, the greatest spiritual family in the world invited me in, I don't have another couple hours for another couple people in my week. Like, my life is full relationally. I get it. My question is, are they all threes? You say, my team is full. Okay, but are they all threes? Your team is full, but is it a team that can help you win? Your team is full, but does it have people that will challenge you, that will love you, that will comfort you, that'll look after you? To have people that'll come to church with you? Does it have people that will pray for you? Say, my team is full. Okay, but if they're all threes, it doesn't matter. So I wanna show you today what a strong spiritual family looks like. I believe these members of a spiritual family are non-negotiable. If you want to get strong and stay strong spiritually, number one, a spiritual father and mother. When you hear that phrase, spiritual father and mother, do you have a name that you immediately write into the blank? I have been saddened today. I've preached this message three times and I've met with people after I've preached this message three times. And I have heard from some of the highest level Christians and leaders in our church after this message, Christian, I have never had a spiritual father and mother and I don't right now. There's some people in this church that have never had a spiritual father and mother. Well, some of us, like me, were real lucky. We're real lucky because our biological mom and dad were our spiritual mom and dad too. If that's you, that's a gift. But even as we transition life, if you live in a different city like I do, my parents live in Chicago. I need a spiritual father and mother in Kansas City. Some of you, your biological parents, not only aren't your spiritual parents but they think you're crazy for walking with Jesus because we have so many first-generation Christians in our church. You need a spiritual father and mother. Can I say this to those of you who are in here and you're over the age of 50? Can I say something to you? Thank you for coming to our church. Do you realize how important you are in this church in a church filled with couples in their 20s and 30s and young 40s, do you have any idea, if you're 50, 60, 70, how important you are in this church and how much we need you? Not just in our church, but in our lives. Do you know we need your wisdom? We need your life experience. We need your friendship. And we don't just need you sitting, like, listening to the message. We need you to come early. Come early. We need you to serve with us in ministry. We need you to learn our name and we need you to get to know our families. And when you hear us talk about how hard it is, we need you to look at us and say, it's gonna be okay. I did this, it's gonna be okay. We need you to come to our small groups and when you hear us talking about the hard week we had with our young kids and our teenagers, we need you to look at us and tell us your story about that week in your life and how your kids today are successful and everything's gonna be okay. Like we need you. Thank you for being in our church, but be in our lives. Thank you for putting up with our craziness. Thank you for putting up with our jeans and our drums and, you know, people on the stage that wear like a hat, like it's snowing, but even though they're inside, I know that all that's like crazy to you. Like, man, what is going on with these kids? Thank you for putting up with us. We don't know what we're doing. We need you. We need spiritual fathers and mothers just to love us and be in our life. We need spiritual brothers and sisters. Do you have one of these? I mean, does a name immediately pop into your head that you write down, my spiritual brother or sister? I got a friend in Arizona. I was in Arizona last week for spring break. The last 10 years, we've traveled to Arizona with my mom and dad to watch baseball and play golf and hang out, but I've got a friend who lives there part of the year. We've gone to his house every year now for 10 years to have dinner while we're there, and he did what he's done for 10 years Before we left, he pulled me aside, said, how you doing? And he said, can I pray for you? And he just stopped and he prayed for me. He's not a pastor. I don't even think he's a Sunday school teacher. He's just a great Christian. He's a great spiritual brother. And he just prayed for me. Do you know that he never calls me on the phone without praying for me before we get off the phone? And regardless of where we are, that he never lets me leave. I'm the pastor without praying for me man, that's a spiritual brother. You have one of those? You have a spiritual brother, spiritual sister who's constantly pouring into you spiritually? Man, I don't know how I'd make it without people like that. Do you have any spiritual children? Say, so what's a spiritual child? Well, if you, have, if you have children, you have spiritual children if you're trying to walk with Jesus. But spiritual children, it's somebody or a group of somebodies who are a spiritual generation behind you that you've committed to lead and to love and just to watch out for and just to make sure they're going to be okay. Brandon's one of the guys who leads worship. He's singing right here. He and his wife are going to have a, a baby in two weeks, their second baby. Man, having babies will change your life. <laughs> having spiritual babies will change your soul. You know the second greatest experience of your Christian life after, maybe, after, after becoming a Christian personally and maybe your baptism? You know the next greatest spiritual moment of your life? It's when you tell a friend about Jesus and they say yes. Or you invite a friend to church with you and at the end of the service you feel them raise their hand or you see them stand up and you have them tell you, I said yes to Jesus and I want to follow him. Something happens inside your soul when you birth a spiritual child and someone becomes alive spiritually and you realize you get to be a spiritual parent now to this spiritual child. Do you have any spiritual children that you're working on? It's why we love Easter at our church. We love Easter because God produces babies at Easter. Like Easter is a time where people come alive spiritually. Do you know a recent survey said nearly nine in 10 people who do not go to church and do not call themselves Christians will go to church on Easter Sunday if someone will invite them? I want you think about that. Nine out of 10 of your friends who don't go to church and who don't even know Jesus would would be open to going to church with you on Easter if you invited them. Let me go one step further in the series. Half of that 90% said they're actually hoping someone will invite them to church on Easter Sunday because they believe on Easter you should go to church like they believe on Christmas you should open presents. They see everyone doing it but them and they're hoping someone will invite them. Like they're watching all their Christian friends on Facebook, and they're hoping someone will say, come with me. Because they want to buy new clothes, and they want to go to church, and they want to be able to share their Easter. They don't want the whole world talking about Easter, but them. So they're actually, if they knew how to pray, they'd be praying. But on the inside, they're watching you and realizing that you're Christians, and you go to church, and they're thinking, man, I hope they'll invite me this year. Because I want to go. I just don't know where to go. I don't know what time to show up. I don't know how to dress, and I don't want to go by myself. But man, if somebody would invite me, I would love to have Easter like everyone else has Easter. So what spiritual children are you working on seeing get a new spiritual life this Easter? Man, don't let that week go by. And then you need spiritual friends. You know, I put three lines here because Jesus had three, Peter, James, and John. They were an inner circle of four among their disciples, Jesus and his three friends. And here's a unique part of this list right here. This is not Christians who are your friends. Everyone might have two or three Christian friends. This is a group of four, an intentional group of four that says, hey, let's be in each other's life to make sure that we are our spiritual best with each other. Like let's commit to each other that our friendship is going to be based on who Jesus is in our life and what Jesus wants out of our life. So how do I know if I have friends like that? If you have friends like that, your list of three will include three people who write your name down and the other two that you have. Like all four people will all write the exact four names if you have a group like that. And you know what? When I made this message last month, I didn't have a group like this. As a pastor of the church, I got a lot of Christians who are friends, but I thought, I don't have, I don't have anyone who's going to write my name down because I, I don't live in a group of Four intentional friends who have committed to help one another be all who Jesus wants them to be. So as, as I looked at this, I thought, I can't preach this without pursuing this. So I texted three guys in our church that all live within about five minutes of me. I basically said, I'm preparing this message and I realized I'm kind of lacking this thing in my life. I don't have any friends like this. So like, do you want to go out spiritually circle? Yes or no. Like I literally put on the text <laughs> circle. Yes or no. Two of them were technologically savvy enough that they literally sent me back a picture that had a yes and a no, and they circled yes. One of them, like me, doesn't know phones, and he was like, man, um, I I absolutely will do that, and he said, and I need that. As a matter of fact, all of them not only said yes, they said, yes, because I need that. You know, I know most Christians don't have spiritual friends because we get busy, and I, I didn't. But man, as a pastor, I got three people now. I mean, I talked to one of them today in the hallway. They're like, when are we going to get together and just check up on one another? So I know, let's make it happen. Let's live to be all in with what Jesus is doing in our lives. You know, if you don't have any spiritual family, you you just got to start somewhere. This week on our our podcast, um, if you subscribe to our podcast, remember because of our limitations here, we started a podcast called Activate, which is basically an extra 20 minutes of stuff from the message that doesn't get said on Sunday. Pastor Brandon, who kind of hosts the podcast, asked me this question, Christian, if you don't have any spiritual family, where do you start? Like, which one's the most important? So I take about seven minutes to answer. If you're a man, do this. If you're a woman, do this. If you're a single adult, do this. And here's why I would start there. So I would encourage you, if you get a chance this week on the way to work, listen to the podcast. But the bottom line of it is this. You have to have a spiritual family. Because if you don't need it today, you're going to one day. The James effect tells us that. You see, if we could see our future like Jesus sees our future including the reality of our losses and our tragedies and our Jameses that are there and then they're gone. If we could see it like Jesus sees it, we would listen very closely to his challenge to connect to spiritual community because spiritual community becomes spiritual family at just the time when you need it most. I mean, it doesn't start off that way. It starts off eating pizza like we're gonna do after church. It starts out being greeters together. It starts out in a small group or in a men's group or a women's group. Starts out just being community. I know your name, you know my name. But when something happens, something spiritually allows spiritual community to become spiritual family so that God can take care of us. But you have to invest in community to be prepared for family. So if you're in here and you say, Christian, I'm just in a season of solitude right now trying to heal, okay, okay but maybe we can move through that season of solitude and now turn into a future of spiritual family. If you've been in our church a while, if you're brand new, this is probably not for you unless you feel open to it. But if you've been at our church a while, you've had a season of rest and you've not let leaned into community, I, I, I wanna challenge you with an action step today. I want everyone right now to just reach inside your bulletin and pull out this card that says small groups. And I, even if you're in a small group, I want everyone to do this because there's someone sitting in your row who needs to do this, but they're going to be embarrassed to be the only one reaching for their deal. So everyone do it. You'll minister to someone by doing this because it'll give them freedom to pull theirs out and look at it as well. If your season of rest, of healing, and of refreshment has come to an end or a good enough end, then it's time to say yes to community so that when the time is right, your spiritual family's already in your life. I'm gonna ask you before you leave today, if you don't have spiritual community at our church to fill out this card, your name, your email address, and to check one of these groups and say, I will put myself in spiritual community knowing that one day I'll need spiritual family. We have serve groups. Say, what's a serve group? They meet like 15 minutes before church on Sunday morning, serve a little bit, and then they're gone. It's the fastest way just to get to know community. We have small groups. Those are people who hang out at each other's house, Panera, Starbucks, whatever. They're groups that meet throughout the week to just talk about what they're learning, what's going on in life. All of them, Almost all of them have childcare provided. You might be ready for something like that. There are grow groups that are just really about reading extra books, getting real deep in the Bible, holding each other accountable. If you say, that's what I'm looking for in a church. You can check that. But I want to challenge you if you don't have a spiritual family, if your life is not built to have a team that wins, it's time to start looking for some teammates. And this is the first step in our church to do that. You say, why would we do that? Because of what happened to John and Mary. You know, if we keep reading the story of Jesus and his church We read a verse in acts chapter 19 verse 10 about a church in ephesus It's in modern-day turkey And in acts 19 10 the statement is made that everyone in asia, which basically was the known world at the time Everyone in asia heard about jesus from this church And you read that and you think there's no like that's hyperbole. There's no way but maybe Just maybe that became the place everybody went The Apostle Paul started that church. He then turned it over to a young guy that he was mentoring. His name was Timothy. When Timothy left that church, history tells us that the Apostle John moved to Ephesus and he pastored that church for 25 to 40 years. And he took Mary with him. Which means, 25 years after Jesus had lived and died, and the books had been written about him, and people were curious about Jesus and who he was. That means that his last living friend and his mom lived in the same place and did ministry together. You know, if you go to Ephesus today and fly to Turkey, that you can go to a house that tradition holds is built over the site where Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived and did ministry while with John in Ephesus. You start to think about that and you think, you know what? I believe no matter where I lived in the world, if I could go hear one of Jesus' friends preach, I would figure out a way to get there. You know what, it actually makes sense that if Jesus' mother were holding a Bible study or was available to say hello to over a cup of coffee in the entry after church, I would probably do everything in my power to get there. It actually makes sense that maybe in this place, all of the known world heard about Jesus because of this spiritual family that was put together at the cross who leaned into each other and lived for each other. Could you imagine the impact if our church would do that? Can you imagine if 50 to 100 years from now it was said that everyone in your neighborhood heard about Jesus and what spiritual family looked like because you and a few of your friends got together and lived life differently? As spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, as spiritual friends, can you imagine if your whole neighborhood would say the way they live life is just different? And everyone heard about how Jesus' followers loved one another because of your spiritual family. That could happen if you would choose to apply with courage what you've learned today. Would you consider that while we pray?